Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we discuss a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. Welcome, welcome back, back to, to Season, season two. 2. Ooh, we said that in time. This is Episode 6, A Gentle Prod. Last episode before our break, we discussed three different sustainability stories and what they mean for the future. Be sure to check out that episode and any of the others that take your fancy after this. We're now in 2021, and today we're discussing nudge design. We are indeed. It's been a little while since we've done a podcast. You know, reasons. We were planning indeed. to get back a bit earlier, but we didn't. Reasons, absolutely. I uh, was in Kenya for a slightly prolonged amount of time and couldn't record from there. But I'm back to the lockdown and cold of the UK, and we are back to consistently giving you some design content a little bit each month. Or every two weeks or whatever it is. Every two, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been a schedule, while. Yeah, we every really Every two have. weeks. So let's just get straight into it. Nudge design. Do you want to get going? Yeah, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? It's kind of everywhere, often used in marketing um, and has its pros and definitely has its cons. So it's going to be a little interesting one to talk about and lots of examples we've got as well. So some fun things in here. Yeah. So let's start with kind of what it is. Um, it's what well, defined, I guess, by humans' needs and the way we make choices. Yeah, it's basically a experiment around behavioral economics is what it's called. It's basically just down to how, as humans, we make decisions. And in actual fact, a lot of our decisions are not rational or not you know, conscious decisions are just sort of things that we just automatically do or we're driven in that direction by the emotions or social interactions and environmental stimulus that we have around us when mm. we're making the decision. Okay, so it's kind of, you know, the subconsciousness of our choices and this is an entire, well, I guess, concept of design that pushes people towards doing things. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it I just sort of a good way to explain it. It's like when you're walking, we're doing a lot of walking nowadays. Um, when you're walking about in the woods or something like that, if you get to a muddy bit, you might automatically just sort of skirt around the edge without really thinking about it. And I guess that's sort of that's sort of the subconscious decisions that nudge so this is based is the on. Skirting the muddy bit of design. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's just that sort huh. of something you automatically do. And it's not necessarily that it's a decision you wouldn't make if you thought about it, but it's just a decision that you automatically do without thinking about, hmm, okay, let's not stand in the mud because I don't want to get muddy boots. It's just a kind of, oh, we'll go this way. Yeah. That makes sense. So you have linked here some kind of, I guess, principles that define nudge design. Did you, where did these come from? So it came from a design group I found. Um, a video about nudge design on, on YouTube, to be honest. I don't know whether these are well-recognized principles of nudge or whether it was just sort of this design lab's decisions on what they thought were the principles of good nudge. Mm. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting nonetheless, so I thought I'd include it. So nudge design is kind of somewhat defined by four main principles of what makes it good and effective, and those are... One, align incentives with desired behaviors. 
two, provide clear, visible, and immediate feedback to reinforce desired actions. Three, simplify and structure choices when design-making parameters are complex. And four, make goals and performance status clearly visible. Yeah, so those are kind of complex. So let's, let's, let's break that down. So number one, align incentives with desired behavior. That's, that's making sure that whatever you want the person to do is linked to what they get out of it, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, so it's trying to, yeah, I guess align the incentives, yeah. So it's, it's just about getting the behavior that you want someone to do from your design to actually be a behavior that they want to do. You're trying to make it so they don't have to think about it, but you, it wants to be something they would want to do. And it's a lot of want-to-dos right there. but <laughs> That was quite a lot of want-to-dos. So number two, provide clear, visible, and immediate feedback to reinforce desired actions. That is giving someone a kind of positive, like, well done of some form when they do whatever you want them to want to do. Yeah, and I think this is an interesting one because we'll get to some examples in a bit and we'll definitely get some which probably don't align with all these principles and I'm sure we can discuss why that yeah. makes them slightly more nefarious. And, and also ones that it. use the principles for just kind of less than positive tasks and reasons. Mm. Yeah. Abs yeah, absolutely. So number three is simplify and structure choices when decision-making parameters are complex. This one's fairly straightforward. It's basically just, you know, if it's a, com if it's a more complicated decision or complicated procedure, it's just about making it more understandable and quick to do so that it's, it can be like that's subconscious, I guess, because if it's too complicated, subconscious might not quite mm, yeah. make the right decision, I guess. And last but not least at all, make goals and performance status clearly visible. That's just kind of, you know, keeping it transparent, I suppose. Yeah, as I said, these are the sort of principles of good nudge, and it's a lot about transparency, and we can get onto the not transparent ones a bit later. But it also, it's, these also do depend on what, the, what you're actually doing. So I think one of my favorite examples I'm going to bring up now is the fly logo that they put in urinals and now this is such a simple thing so basically i think it started in an airport i believe in amsterdam they realized that there was a lot of mess getting on the floor in the gents toilets um so they put a small fly logo inside the urinals just above the drain and apparently it reduced the amount of splash onto the floor by about 80 percent that is because... insane how effective it was <laughs> Men are extremely fickle, and if they see a target, they want to aim at it. I think is basically what happened there. Yeah. But with that one, you know, it goes back to the some of the principles. Do we need to make the goals and the performance status clearly visible? I mean, I don't think so. Not so much. Maybe the performance status is the floor being cleaner. I guess. But yeah, then I guess people appreciate that. Yeah. Maybe the floor being cleaner means people stand closer mm. and are better at aiming then. Well. Have you ever used a <laughs> urinal know. with a fly in it? I have to ask. I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have too. They're, they're all over the world now because it, it was so successful. I, I have not actually seen them. I've, I think I've only seen them in that airport in, in Amsterdam. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah. I've definitely seen them in other places. but. And obviously there are other cases of this kind of thing, but more on the kind of 
guerrilla marketing public art. Like there was one that was one of those trophy urinals that was also a Tetris game. So wherever you peed, it like drew shapes. But that's, <laughs> you know, that's stupid. This is a small, yeah. easy thing that makes a janitor's life a lot easier. And it's a good example of nudge design. Another decent example is the blood donation program in Sweden, where, you know, it's much like any other. You donate blood, probably get a cookie or something. But when your blood is used to save someone's life, you receive a text message kind of like thanking you and also just letting you know. Yeah, I really like this one. I've not donated blood myself. Um, and it definitely is something I probably should do. I want but, to. Yeah, I would quite like to. I just haven't. It's one of those yeah. things. Um, I, I'm on the I'm on the the list, like the matching list for a bone marrow. Oh, are you? Okay. Yeah, Anthony Nolan or whatever it's called. I'm on that, but I've never donated blood, and I should. Yeah, yeah, I definitely should as well. But as I said, this one's quite interesting because it gives the people that have donated blood. I mean, I'd find it really interesting, and I'd like to know if I donated blood and if it actually gets used to to save someone's life. Yeah. Maybe that's a, it's I guess it's a slightly um egotistical thing, I suppose. I, I don't know, it's I, it's cool though because, you know, I think you can donate blood and just imagine it sits in a freezer for years. Even mm. though that's really not true because there's always a need for blood. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it might I don't actually even know what my blood type is to be honest and whether it's a common <laughs> one that would be I, yeah, My mum might know to be fair, I should probably ask her, but <laughs> Yeah, you should do. I'm sure the other thing it does is it, you know, you mentioned it here, it prevents uh, blood stocks from running low because people are more mm. inspired to go and donate again. Yeah, and I guess the, the thing with this is it reinforces the positive behaviour of donating blood and it might make them then go, oh, they've used my blood. Oh, I'll donate again then because they've used up mine yeah. and clearly it was helpful. But it also might, it's the sort of thing, it's a talking point, isn't it? If you get a text and you you, you have a text to say, your blood has been used to save someone's life. That's the sort of thing that you're probably going to sort of mention to maybe your family or some friends that you're around at the Yeah, the you're time. on a date and you're like, hey, you know where my blood is? <laughs> I just saved someone's life whilst we were sitting eating this sandwich. Yeah, um, yeah so then maybe that will encourage other people to do it as well. So it's, it's clever and it is a sort of nudge. Yeah, absolutely. That. And that's a good example. The next one that we listed that is something I've worked in quite a lot is monetization within mobile apps. Now, these aren't good nudges. No. Um, if we want to take an example of an app that does it that I'm very aware of that a lot of at least our UK audience will use is uh, Trainline. They've got a subscription service of like, train. I think they call it Trainline Pro or something. And it gives you... I have no idea what you get. Anyway, it's £15 a month, which is a lot of money to book train tickets. And the way they advertise it is when you're buying a ticket, there's a button at the bottom of the checkout page saying, you know, get £20 off this order, which of course everyone's like, yeah, I'd like to get a big discount off my train ticket. But then in the small gray text below that, it says, you know, selecting this will enroll you into our partner program for £15 a month. Oh, that's shady. I know, it's really shady. So that's an example of a really bad one. Now, the ones I've worked in have been usually better. It's all about 
basically this is when free apps have in-app purchases and they want to encourage you to in some way or another buy it now obviously the worst ones is they just break your workflow whatever it is if it's a game or in my case i've worked on photography apps where every time you go to your photo album it you know says hey maybe you want to buy the app and you know that's quite in intrusive but it's not cheating you out of anything necessarily Mm. it's being clear about what you're getting out of it Mm. unlike the train line one but it's it's annoying i guess and personally when i have those things that that pop up that are annoying it makes me go okay yeah it would be nice to not do this but because of the fact that you've just annoyed me i don't want to give you money yeah no absolutely that that's that does happen I think the best ones are the ones where if you have a freemium model, so that's where it's free, but there are premium features. And basically what you do is you don't block those premium features entirely, but you have it that when people select them, it prompts them to purchase it. So within the photography app, I've worked on Expodo to shoot in raw, to have that full you know, image editing worthy file size of 20 something megabytes per image you have to have the paid version. So in the settings, if you try and press the button to turn raw on, it pops up a monetization trigger. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that I think works quite well because it's saying it's a very clear, you want this, here's the buy button, as opposed to, oh, you're trying to send this to Instagram? Oops, let's make you pay first or find the hidden gray X somewhere on the screen. Yeah. Actually, this has just made me think of something else, which is used often in video games, um, in like video games that have micro transactions and their own sort of currencies. A lot of these games often have currencies based on, well, yeah, so they have their own currency. So you, you buy a certain amount for that currency to then spend that currency on some form of cosmetic or something within a game. And I think we might have talked. I think we might have talked about this before in the way that that is, um, sort of manipulating you in detracting the understanding of value because yeah, it's we, in a we different. We talked about this in the Disney episode um, with Thomas of how yeah. they kind of disconnect you from real expenses so that you're just living in this fantasy world where everything's kind of perfect. Yeah. Yeah, but I just there's one other thing that I often notice these things because I play quite a lot of video games, and it's that they have it. So you'd say say you'd buy like four hundred of the currency for like five pounds. The next one up might be like ten pounds, and then it'll be like, oh, you get eight hundred plus eighty extra or something like that, eighty three on top. Yeah, and I always find that interesting because it's it it makes it sort of tempting in in the case of like, oh, but I could do that but then i could pay that and then i get a little bit extra but really you're not getting anything extra they've just decided that 480 is how much you get for 10 or 10 pounds worth yeah they're just that they're selling it as you know buy this get this free but really it's no if you buy it in bulk it's cheaper mm. and i mean that you know that can tie into the entire societal concept of how things are more expensive if you're poor if that makes sense because you have to buy everything in smaller proportions you can't go you know get like a 10 pack of something you get one packs over months or whatever Mm. so it's the same thing they're kind of exploiting the idea that the most economical thing is to spend a hundred pounds to get ten thousand coins or whatever but no one's going to do that no yeah and then it 
Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I just find it in interesting like, because it's not like where you might have a promotional sale where it's like, oh, hey, this this current amount is is got a promotion on it. Where if you buy that, you get an additional two hundred coins or something like that. It's literally they're they're always like that. They're always yeah, the same always value. Actually, that that runs well onto another one that we didn't note this down, but it's quite common in shops to just run sales all the time. Aha, the old DFS sale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, you know, you have something that's for sale for 20 quid, but it's always, you know, 10% off. Mm. And then when they actually want to have a sale, they make it 20 or 30% off. But whenever you look at the price, instead of, you know, 1999, it's like 1750. And you're like, oh, that's a deal. Even yeah. though it's never been sold for more than 1750. Is this a bit like... I? I'm not sure about this, but is, does Amazon sort of do this with almost everything? Because pretty much everything you see on Amazon will have the like RRP of the product below and then it'll be like crossed out and then it'll have a price like a few quid cheaper, which is just Amazon's standard price. Yes, no, it absolutely is. But the difference is, is they link it to Prime. So if you don't have Prime, you have to pay the higher price. But I'm essentially how Amazon's doing that is they're saying, well... You know, we're going to sell everything for just slightly cheaper to undercut other things. Yeah. Um, and here's our fancy prime price, basically. Yeah. God, we could do an entire episode on Amazon. God, we could, we could and we could. <laughs> anyway, uh, to, to move on from monetization and awful things, let's talk about soup. Yeah, this, I mean, this sort of ties in, I guess. This is a really interesting one that I found, which I think it was from like nine, the 90s. And I can't remember what brand it was. I think it might have been Campbell Soup. Oh, love Campbell. Um, but basically they did an experiment where they did... So they had like, a, you know, in the supermarkets where you get those like massive stacks of tins. It was that sort of thing. And they had it on sale. So it was like, it might have been like 30% off or something like that. Mm. But with, with it like that, they, they would generally get about 3.3 sales or like 3.3 cans purchased per person that bought some. By putting a sign up next to it that said there's a limit to 12 cans per person, the sales went up to seven per person. That's an insane amount. I don't think I've ever bought more than one or two cans of anything, like especially, you know, soup or beans or chickpeas or something at a time. The only one would be canned tomatoes where I get, you know, a big chunk of a bunch. Yeah. I mean, all these tinned foods, they last a long time, so you can see why there's a value in buying a lot of them. But yeah, it's just that the increase there is so mad from literally just a sign that says that it limits to 12 per person, because it just made it seem more exclusive and more time-limited to people. So they'd see yeah. that and go, oh, that must mean that there's... Well, I guess you see that and you think that that must mean that the people are buying a lot of these, because... And that it's going to go quite quickly, I guess. So, so yeah, so the sales went up to seven, which I just think is insane. Like, that's pretty much double the number of cans per person sold just by putting basically a piece of paper up that says limits to 12 per person. So that cost them really nothing. That's crazy. I wonder if that had an effect on the, uh, obviously, so lockdown, a lot of pasta started selling out in UK supermarkets. And quite quickly, they were saying, you know, limit one or two per person. And the shortages have disappeared, right? But those limits are still in, in existence. So I'm wondering if people who would have usually just bought one packet of pasta 
are now always buying two or three or whatever the limit is? Yeah, maybe actually. I remember having this discussion with with my mum around the time of the first lockdown when sales of things were going a bit mad. And we were always discussing why is it always toilet paper in the UK that goes? And we actually came up came to a decision that I don't know whether this is true, obviously this isn't a study we've done, this is just our mm. work our, our idea for it. And we actually thought that toilet rolls come in massive packs. So they take up a lot of space on a shelf. So it's a lot more noticeable when toilet papers are like the stock is going down. Because there might be like an entire aisle or half an aisle in a supermarket, which is just toilet paper. Yeah. So if suddenly half of that aisle is really empty, it's going to trigger that something. A bit like this limit to 12 per person sign does, where it makes you go, oh God, this is going to run out. Yeah, you'll notice it. And, and go, oh, well, I better get one just in case. But I guess you're right. You'll, you'll notice it really quickly with toilet paper. Mm. Yeah. Whereas with something smaller, you might not necessarily notice because it's not as big a gap on the shelves. Yeah, no, absolutely. So outside of the world of marketing and apps and flies in urinals and whatever, is it urinals or urinals? I don't really know, to be honest. I, I don't I don't like it. Both are disgusting words. Anyway, yeah, the best. outside of all of that, the other place where nudge design can be found is within the field of ergonomics. Now, I've just done some work on ergonomics. It's quite an interesting field of study. I redesigned some Nintendo Switch controllers. But the big thing is that certain, especially doors, doors in general, are very much designed to be obvious as to what you're supposed to do with them. So car doors, for example, I think are the most obvious. They've got the little lip, and you know if you put your hand in there, you know, up until Tesla messed up the whole thing, have yeah, to say. So Tesla are already throwing it about, though. It was so easy. You just put your hand in, you pull, and you either go under and lift up, or you go around and pull straight out. It was really easy, and then Tesla did the whole, like, push the thumb in and then pull on the side. Doesn't make any sense. So car doors are a good example. Um, Metal plates with nothing to grab on is clearly something to push. Metal plates with something to hold is clearly a pull. However, those often get installed badly, and that's an entire separate issue. But all of that is, you know, an affordance. So it's something that affords you to do something, which is a form of nudge design. And I think that's pretty neat. It's Yeah, it sort of is, in a way. I get those sort of things... I think came about before people really probably realized the whole concept of nudge, but yeah, they do, they do fit the, the whole notion of. Oh, definitely. Creating a subconscious decision. I actually just thought of another fun nudge um, example. I can't remember where this was from, but it was in a sort of underground station somewhere around the world. I can't remember where, but basically to encourage more people to use the stairs, they installed this like piano thing oh, onto yes, the stairs. I saw that. I saw that. And so this is a yeah. So this is a sort of nudge in a health sort of benefit. There's, they're they're trying to encourage people, more people to use the stairs to, because it's it's health it's healthy to use the stairs, um, and it increased the amount of people using the stairs like dramatically. People would barely use the stairs, and everyone would just be like cramming onto the escalator up the side. But then they put these piano things on it. So when you walk down the stairs, you actually like sort of make the piano tune play. Um, although I can imagine that would probably be a little bit annoying. But I guess 
when you're just walking through once, it's not. I'm sure it's very annoying. But you know, this is this is a very interesting kind of the overlap between nudge design and guerrilla marketing and public art. Because a lot of that is designed to make people do something so that they think about something or buy something or whatever it is, right? So that piano was installed by an artist or I think it was an artist if I remember when I read about it. So it wasn't a permanent thing. They only had it up for like a month. So it was a public art piece, but in the process, they, you know, discovered that people would be more healthy and would walk more and all that kind of thing. So there's a, there's an overlap between all of these. And I think it kind of goes well into like the contentiousness of nudge design and like how it can be used maliciously and the ethics around it. And like, it really does influence decisions that people make. And I mean, George, do you think that's okay? I generally know, I generally dislike nudge being used in a marketing standpoint like the whole limiting to 12 person per cat like cans of soup per person thing i don't like that because that just seems manipulative and like you're just trying to make people buy more soup when they really don't need it yeah and especially as someone who cares a lot about soup our sort of consumption <laughs> soup um but as well as our, our our consumption of you know resources on the planet when we're coming into climate change i don't think that you know, these companies that are at the end of the day just doing it to get more profit are really using it in the right sense. Cause they're just use they're basically just going, oh, we can get we can make people spend more money on our product by putting up a poster that says this. And clearly people didn't want to buy that product. And this kind kind of go goes back to our four principles. And the first one being inlining a sp- aligning incentives with desired behavior if people didn't want to buy seven cans of soup it's a bit yeah contentious to them put a sign up to make them when all you're really gaining from it is profit no absolutely there's 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 that serious question is you're using it for direct profit i think it's more okay when it's using it for kind of you know general marketing right so if like mm. the piano stairs was installed by a piano company, like that's just something fun that maybe leaves the reminder of a brand in someone's head, but it doesn't actively manipulate someone into paying for something. And I guess the same can go for monetization triggers. Yeah. Is, you know, they're trying to make you press buy at that moment and have Apple pay pop up. Whereas if it was something on an Instagram post, that was encouraging you to buy something, you still have to take the cognitive action to go to the website and buy it. So I think that disconnect is really important. And otherwise it's really used maliciously with this kind of profit goal. Yeah, I guess that's quite a good way of putting it. It's basically the, when it's something which just reminds you of a brand to then give you more reason to consciously go and think, oh, actually I might go and shop with them. As opposed to when it's used to literally manipulate people into buying exactly yeah. more than they were intending. Yeah. So I guess overall, do we, would you say nudge design is acceptable? And obviously like the answer is not going to be yes or no for either of us. Mm. So how, and should it be regulated? 
Yeah, I think there's an interesting one. As I say, I don't like it in the marketing world, really, but I've never been a big fan of the way adverts and those sort of things work in general. Mm. But I think it's one of those things that it's going to happen, and it is happening. It is, you know, we're like, we can't, we're never going to be able to avoid it happening. So maybe it does need some form of regulation. But then I don't know how you'd go about regulating it because yeah. it's quite... It's kind of abstract as a concept. It's very difficult. It's not as simple as other things that we've discussed that could be controlled better. But I don't think, you know, that we should say nudge is not allowed in any circumstances because we've shown there's quite a few good examples, like the fly in the urinals or the Sweden's blood donation sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, I don't know. It's It's a tricky one. What do you think? Uh, I think similarly, you can't restrict it, but I think it should be probably discouraged through education um, and maybe some services like, you know, the Apple App Store and shopping centers and supermarkets and stuff should kind of restrict how much manipulative tactics can be used to make people buy things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but interestingly, there's sort of almost a flip side to it. I was talking about, you know, resource consumption and that sort of side of things. It could easily be used, and it probably is. I can't think of any examples necessarily, but it probably is used by, you know, companies that are trying to get people to buy less and do more healthy practices. Yeah. Um, Actually, I can't think of an example. Like one of the examples about transport and those sort of things was by making things like walking or cycling, like the default option on mm-hmm. whether it's maybe as a transport app, like a, like a, a Google Maps sort of star thing. If, you, if you're trying to get somewhere, you put the location in and it's automatically going on to cycling to get yeah. there. That's sort of a good nudge because it's, yeah, it's, no, it's showing you, you know, oh, you could get here in 35 minutes cycling or you could go on the bus in five. Fully agree with that. Absolutely. And I think that's a good spot to conclude, really. Yeah, I think it is. It's an interesting one. Um, if you're listening, if you've, maybe you'll see some of these around, because that's one of the other things they sometimes, sometimes actually work better when you don't know that they're happening, which is sort yeah. of a fun, a fun thing. But then the things with like the uh, fly in the urinal, I know it's happening because I've known about that one for a while and I've seen some that are there and I still will happily aim. <laughs> yeah. Probably best not to take a picture next time you see one of those, though. No, don't do that. No, do not do that. I'll leave you with a technical term, which is for a door that has been nudge designed badly. And they are called Norman doors. And they're named Mm -hmm. after a man whose last name was Norman, who made it his mission to write about bad doors and doors that say push while you have to pull them and all of that kind of thing. And it's become a term in the industry. So mm. if you see any Norman doors, that's why. Maybe maybe take a picture and send them to us. Yes, absolutely do. So yeah, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and your Norman Dormouse. Unlike <laughs> videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm for recommendations. We rely on your word of mouth as our listeners. 
Yeah, so go and follow us on Instagram at assemble.it for a deeper look into the show and our own work, including behind the scenes, outtakes, projects and updates, and maybe we'll send you some pictures of Norman Dawes. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, share this podcast on your Instagram story, we'll repost it. Share a Norman Dawes on your Instagram story, we'll repost it. And remember to subscribe and share it with your friends, family, co-workers and your Dormouse. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Subassembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoides and George Wyeth and edited by George Wyeth. Music is by Mikey Boatwhistle. This is a 76 Podcasting production.